Welcome to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it we've read. I'm Cameron Kunzelman. And I'm Michael Lutz. Yay! Hooray! Episode 10! Yes! The big 1-0! The big 1-0, and we are <laughs> celebrating by making it a small episode. It's a little baby episode. Probably if you have looked at the runtime, you, the listener... Uh, and I guess if you're looking at a runtime, you're a view a listener. Um, but you're over there. You're saying, I'm, I'm getting ready for it. I'm ready for two hours, three hours and 15 minutes, right? Because every episode somehow gets longer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, three hours and 15 minutes of that beautiful Game Studies content. And you, and you look at it and you say, oh, one hour or something. <laughs> I don't know how long this episode will be, but s- some smaller amount of time. What, I was gonna say, what is yeah. going on? Make sure you're you're like not uh you know your mouth isn't writing checks you can't cash yeah that's that's true. or or yeah that my mouth is checking massive or cashing massive checks <laughs> <laughs> um that metaphor gets going but yeah so this is a little small episode um it's a busy month it's hard mm-hmm. this yeah. is a very busy month for me and me too uh I've got a lot of conference prep that's going on uh. And sort of just general uh, job market things as the as the cycle comes to a close. Mm-hmm. How about you, so, Cameron? Well, I went to a debate tournament. <gasps> wow! I, um, for the first time in a very long time, I went to SCMS. Many listeners were at SCMS. SCMS is Society of Cinema and Media Studies. If you're a game studies person, there are way, 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 way worse places to go. Uh, there's a great community at SCMS of game study scholars who do really great work. Um, and I talked to and met a lot of them there. I'm kind of a, an intermediate or, or um, uh, I don't know. I go to SCMS every couple years. But now I think I'm going to start going a little bit more. But thanks to everyone who, who talked to me about the show and, and had nice things to say. Um, I hope this episode continues the good stuff. Um, <laughs> so if you follow us on Twitter or, or uh, you're in the Discord, you know that the next book that we're doing is uh, Alexander Galloway's uh, gaming book, um, kind of a classic in the field. But we didn't have time to read that and talk about it this month. Um, so we're going to do that next month. And, and instead of that, we're going to give you two separate things that are both new for the show um, this mm-hmm. month. Yes, we're on the we're we're calling this. Here's our branding maneuver. This is Game Studies Study Buddies Spring Break. Spring Break. Spring Break forever. Um Oh, and also part of the reason why um our recording time this last month was taken up um by going on waypoints podcast oh the yeah that's right podcast. that was that was a thing we did <laughs> yeah so so our three hours of recording um part of that was taken up by um going on that you can go check that out i'll put a link in the description below but we went and talked about the philosophy behind kingdom hearts mm-hmm. uh, with the waypoint crew and that was a exciting <laughs> exciting time exciting and fun time um but yeah so this is our spring break we're doing Woo. it um, so what we're going to do is we're going to, I, I thought of like a beach read, you know, that I thought would be fun for uh, game study stuff. Um, and I think Michael has two. And then we're going to read an article. I'm going to hold mm-hmm. that. I'm going to hold that secret until we actually talk about it. Okay. But, uh, w- but we found a game studies article that we like. Actually, is that bad? Is that bad to do? Should we just say the name? I was going to say that makes it sound like <laughs> there are all these other game studies articles that we just hate. <laughs> 
that's true. Um, okay, yeah, we're gonna we're, so we're gonna do kind of a short reading uh, or discussion, the same kind of thing that we normal normally do in the show, um, but around Amanda Phillips's article, "Shooting to Kill: Headshots, Twitch Reflexes, and the Mecro Politics of the Video Game." Uh, came out last year. Um, Amanda Phillips is doing work that I find really, really interesting and fascinating. And so when we were talking about what to do for this episode, I immediately thought, hey, I, I want to talk about this article. Um, so that'll be kind of the back half of the episode, or the back two thirds or something like that. Um, but before we get there, Beach mm-hmm. Reads. Michael, what's your Beach Read pick? Um, so I uh, am currently... so. I am my beach read pick is going to be a kind of general author that I'm going to uh, introduce folks to and kind of offer some uh, caveats. But the author that I would like to talk to you about is this guy named Michael McDowell, who was recently sort of brought back to to my attention. Um, he was a paperback original writer back in the '80s, um, back when back when the publishing market was very very different. You could, in fact, just sort of make a make a life writing um, really quick pot boilers that were you know uh, published as paperbacks and sold in grocery stores. Um, so you got a lot of this is sort of like the the '80s version of uh, or the evolution of pulp fiction. Um, and Michael McDowell uh, wrote some horror. Uh, paperbacks, and he also wrote some sort of mysteries and sort of like weird comic thrillers, uh, and he had various pen names. Uh, but if you have probably never heard of him, nevertheless, you have heard of stuff that he has done. So um, he wrote the original, and I think part of the second draft for the Tim Burton film Beetlejuice. Um, and he also wrote the screenplay for The Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, one of the initial hmm. drafts of that. So this tells you something kind of about his, uh, I guess, sensibility. Um, but the horror novels that he wrote, um, which I, there are basically sort of like three or three or four like uh, core horror novels in his, in his body of work. Um, and I have read three of them, and I'm currently reading through the fourth one, which is uh, called Blackwater, and it was the last one he published in like '83. Um, but I am just sort of generally recommending people check out uh, Michael McDowell uh, because his horror novels are really, really interesting. Stephen King was actually a huge fan. He called him, um, and this is something that's used on all of the marketing on the reprints of McDowell's books, is he called King called him like the finest uh, uh, writer of paperback originals in America, I believe is how he put it. Um, and his, his novels are like, they're, they are like the perfect embodiment of beach time like summertime horror reading right they're very uh brisk um there's there there's nothing and this is not meant to be a bad thing right there is nothing terribly difficult about the way they're presented um they're very well written and they're like uh very conscientiously written uh in a way that is not really about the prose but about sort of the tone of the storytelling that i find really fascinating um so he's the the four novels uh the one that i'm reading right now is blackwater which i'm really enjoying it's like 800 or a thousand pages long depending on the printing because it was originally published as like six short uh like chat books um and then came together in a single novel and if this if you're a stephen king fan this will sound familiar because stephen king literally took this idea and wrote the book the green mile dang um, yeah i read uh, the green mile in its little individual things and right. let me tell you that is not the optimal way to read that book <laughs> <laughs> um 
But uh, I'm enjoying Blackwater. I can't speak to how it pays off, uh, but his earlier three novels are called The Amulet, um, The Elementals, and Cold Moon Over Babylon. Um, and if I were to recommend, like, one to do for beach reading, um, based on what I know, I would say go with The Elementals, because it's a really interesting story that's kind of a, uh, a haunted house story about... Um, they're all these his his horror novels are all southern gothics right they're about uh people in florida or alabama um and like sort of aging decadent families and sort of soap opera ish kind of uh characteristics where everyone's got uh people are scheming against each other for like social advantage and so on and so forth and then there also happen to be these like horrible supernatural things lurking in the background but they're very subdued most of the time or they're also very weird and unexpected like the way the supernatural emerges can be very original and strange um in ways that i find very compelling so i recommend the elementals it's about um a family uh, actually two families um, who have intermarried and the the matriarch of one of the families has recently passed away and they all everyone comes together for the funeral um, and then they go down to the two families beach properties which this is how they met is they had um, sort of adjoining beach properties uh, in on the on the Gulf Coast um, and there's a third house in between the two houses that has been abandoned for like 30 or 40 years and no one has gone in but there's something inside there there, nevertheless, right? And the beach has sort of started moving up and enveloping the house. There's like a half of the house is covered in a dune and no one's really done anything about it because no one cares. People tend to avoid this house, but whatever is living inside the house is using the sand to get out. Um, and it's very, very cool. And then the caveat that I will add is that like, you know, Michael McDowell is a writer from the South who is writing in the 80s about the South. So uh, he is not very good with race stuff. Just FYI. Um, he is not the absolute worst about it. Uh, but also like there are just moments where um, you're like, yep, you could have handled that better. Also, he maybe tends a little toward the, you know, with with this kind of like commercial pulp fiction, there's maybe some stuff that could be misogynist um he can get into that kind of thing um but it's also very interesting because he is a gay man so the, the thing that i would actually compare these books to is kind of american horror story if anyone who's listening is familiar with um that series hmm. in the sense that uh if you know where to look you get a really interesting view of like a queer man's understanding of the south um, and sort of like those social dynamics, uh, because it's kind of, uh, there are a lot of female characters, uh, some of them are kind of very subtly queer-coded, and then there are also um, male characters who are more, I think, ostentatiously queer-coded, even though it's never said anything about them. It's like, oh, this guy is trying to talk about like his experience of being a gay man in Alabama, in the way that this character is interacting with things. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I recommend Michael McDowell, and I recommend especially The Elementals, which is is a, a great uh, horror time horror summertime beach read. Hmm. Well, that sounds good. And uh, can't say that I'm super surprised that someone endorsed by Stephen King might be a little bad at writing race. Yeah. No. I. It's, <laughs> that's sort of the weird thing, right? Is like thinking about uh, how St he is not quite as bad as Stephen King, <laughs> which is the weird thing, right? But at the same time, he can be pretty mean. Mm-hmm. Well, sounds good. Sounds like yep. an interesting set of books. I'll do that. I'll buy that. Oh, I'll They're... also say he can get really like 
when he when he wants to be horrific, just FYI, right? He can be horrific. I'm talking like, uh, you know, like oh, a baby gets put in in the clothes washer, right? Jeez. Like, right? Like content he, warning. Yes, no, some like con- <laughs> like it's really interesting because um, none of this like none of this stuff is presented as like quite as sensationally as as you might expect and that actually makes it more horrific right he tends to be almost journalistic in the way that he approaches like these these horrible things that happen oh, um, the, the, the baby in the dishwasher right well <laughs> it's like and the baby in the dishwasher doesn't happen in the elementals or the dishwasher the clothes washer that happens in his book the amulet um hmm. which has a lot of if you're if you're a person who likes slasher movies and like really creative kills the amulet is the one you want to read um so just giving you that that sounds cool Mm-hmm. My recommendation is not anything remotely close to that. I've been <laughs> reading. Um, I've been reading the Final Fantasy Ultimania archive. Do you know what these are? I do not. Okay, so these things came out years ago in Japan. Um, uh-huh. I, I, as far as I know, because I read like bad fan translations of them years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and I mean, like. I don't know, maybe six or seven years ago, I think, quite a long time ago. But basically, they are a big, like, concepting dump of the Final Fantasy games. So, like, all of the extant concept art and demo screens and story files and script files and storyboards, all that kind of stuff. They are just kind of, like, haphazardly thrown into a big book. And um, Dark Horse has been printing them in the United States, and the third one is not out yet. The third one, I think, is going to be Final Fantasy X through fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not out yet, but I have the first two. The first volume is 1 through 6, and then the second volume is um, 7, 8, and 9. And they were on sale recently for whatever reason they were like severely marked down on amazon so i bought them and i've been having a a grand old time just like going through and reading um about what the kind of story ideas are behind these very kind of like at least to me the development of the final fantasy games is very opaque right like Mm -hmm. i've read translated interviews and you know whenever there's a video series or a docuseries that comes out i tend to check it out but you know really i don't know much about you know, like, what did characters look like before their final version? Or mm-hmm. um, what was the initial story beat that didn't get put in? And some of that's edited out of this because, you know, this is kind of the official archival version of these mm. games. But a lot of it's still in there, like these kind of alternate costumes or what could the main character of Final Fantasy VII have been? Or what did Red the 13th look like originally? All that kind of stuff. Or characters that were designed and just never implemented into the game. So there's a lot of cool stuff like that in it. Um, So that's my recommendation slash pick. Although, um, unlike these uh, kind of pulpy uh, horror novels that you're talking about, which conveniently are printed in paperback Mm -hmm. and will fit right in your pocket, (laughs) paperback pocket, um, these are not. These are giant. They're like a foot and a half tall. (laughs) <laughs> you know wow. they're, they're they're massive because they're like archival books right so they're that kind of like almost uh if you're familiar with comic books they're almost absolute dc absolute style uh-huh. um so they're that tall so they really don't fit necessarily in even a tote bag 
But wow. uh, if you just want something light and cool to check out every day uh, or read a little bit of at a time, that's how I've been reading them. Um, and if I'm going to be honest, I uh, I really got started buying them because I wanted to buy the second volume so I could get all the information on Final Fantasy VIII, which I am currently planning on writing some sort of academic article about. Um, uh, so, Is it about how Final Fantasy VIII is the best one? You know what? There's not enough academic articles like that. Right. No, just, you know what? This is the best one. Right. It's like fight me, we've, IRL. We've been we've been wondering in game studies for years which Final Fantasy is the best one, and they keep making them, presumably under the impression that they haven't made the best one. So, I mean, do you think that's why they keep making them, or do you think they're making them to just solidify the legacy of the best one? <laughs> to be like, look, we can't do it again. We're, yeah. We keep trying, but we look just at can't. This. Every every game, every Final Fantasy since Final Fantasy VIII has been a testament to the inability to live up to Final Fantasy VIII. Yeah, it's just uh, you know, it's like uh, falling on your knees in front of the Lord. Right? <laughs> it's it's just we're gonna put all the effort in, but it's not really for anything other than the performance. Um, so those are so those are very cool, and like I said, I they're not as cheap as a paperback necessarily, but I bought both of the first two for I think like fifteen and twenty bucks each. I actually think I bought the first one used. Mm-hmm. Or use like new for like ten bucks plus four dollars shipping. So you can get them pretty cheap. And if you just like Final Fantasy stuff, or if you're like in the academic world and you're looking to write on these games or get some additional context on these games that's not fan translated, which maybe mm-hmm. is an important um, lever to pull, then these are cool. They're they're cool books. They got a lot of different uh, concept art of of Moogles. If you like Moogles. <laughs> uh, got a lot of story documents. Uh, something I found really cool is that uh, Final Fantasy VIII has uh, an entire, like, multiple pages of a frame-by-frame storyboard of the final cinematic of that game. Um, and it's interest- really interesting to look at that storyboard and then, and then look at what actually was implemented in the game to see the difference there. Um, and how, what I really like about the end of that game or the, the ending cinematic of that game is that it uses this kind of like in-game footage and pre-rendered stuff in really mm. weird ways. And, uh, yeah, it looks cool. It's good stuff. Good stuff. So yeah, if you're heading out to the beach, that's what you should read. These giant final fantasy books or these cheap paperbacks. Mm-hmm. And if you're uh, going to put it in your luggage, Say you're say you're flying to Cancun, you're gonna have a sweet <laughs> sweet summer. Uh, make sure that you allot probably like nine pounds for these Final Fantasy books <laughs> in your fifty pounds of uh, of luggage. Well, Michael, that's mm-hmm. the first part of this episode. Yes, and I want to say here before we actually get into the content of, of or well that was content before we get into the game studies content of, of this episode had a really interesting exchange with um esports scholar tl taylor um on twitter after our last episode um because in the last episode about games of empire i talked really briefly at the beginning about how games of empire kind of comes into to prominence or or gets treated as important because it's one of the first kind of looks at the games industry holistically um, as far as the industry is concerned, right? So, like, doing theoretical analysis of the industry. <laughs> um, and Chiel really helpfully pointed out that that's not true. Um, that Africare's book... Um, um, I can the remember... The Business and Culture of Digital Games? Uh, is that the first one? 
That's her first book from 2006. Yeah, then that one. What's, what's the subtitle of that? Uh, game work slash gameplay. Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to remember. Um, yeah, so as you can tell from that subtitle, obviously it's doing similar work or thinking through similar problems uh, as the other one. So I put that on our list of things to check out. We probably won't check it out uh, super soon um, mm-hmm. due to, um, you know, we don't want to stack up two books of similar type, um, you know, within a couple episodes. But it seems like a really cool thing, and so does her more recent book, um, Global Games. Uh, right. That also seems cool. Yeah, yeah, no, she's a, she's clearly expanded on that original work, which is worth checking out, probably. Yeah, and there, and also to be clear, um, obviously, and uh, you know, I didn't say this in the in the initial episode, but I should have. Obviously, there's a whole lot of other work that is before Games of Empire because they're citing a whole lot of that work. Mm-hmm. Um, so just just to to make that clear, but that's not what we're talking about for the back half here. For the back half, we are talking about. Shooting to kill. Mm-hmm. Headshots, twitch reflexes, and the mechropolitics of the video game. This is by Amanda Phillips, who mm-hmm. is a uh, assistant professor of English at Georgetown University. Mm-hmm. Um, this essay came out, or this, yeah, essay. I don't mm-hmm. know why. I don't know why I do, like, I said essay. I was like, oh, it's not an essay. And I was like, no, <laughs> wait, hold on. It absolutely is. Yep. Um, came out in Games and Culture, which is one of the big um, kind of flagship journals for game studies um if you're not familiar with it i you know i would say that big journals that you should be paying attention to if you're a graduate student or uh, someone who's interested in games in a, in a general sense um game studies is kind of like the big field defining one um and i think kind of uh, alongside of that of equal importance is games and culture and then maybe the journal of virtual worlds i find really engaging and interesting um and there are a lot of other ones too but those are kind of the the ones i think of immediately when i think of what is the what is the place where some of the most interesting and forward thinking work is happening um in game studies Mm -hmm. um but yeah so came out last year um in volume or in 13.2 uh if you really want to find the citational information but i promise if you plug all of that other stuff into google you'll be able to um find some version of it probably how'd you how'd you feel about this uh article (laughs) michael um i thought that this article was good (laughs) um i mean just i guess you know a general content warning for folks listening in case you missed the the name of the article right this is going to be talking about headshots um and not just headshots in video games but sort of the uh way that headshots are treated or presented or thought about in a gaming context how this has very real and direct bearings um for headshots in real life and and gun violence and things like that so we will be discussing that um uh at least tangentially um throughout the course of this but uh, one of the things that phillips kind of puts out up front is that you can get with with this kind of point of view uh with this kind of argument you can get very close to the the old tired like does video games cause violence kind of uh moral panic from, from the late 90s, early 2000s, kind of the Columbine era sort of thing, uh, where it's a very simple kind of like, oh, these people played violent video games, and then that made them be violent in real life. This this, this simple causative principle. Um, but uh, Phillips is, is very 
insistent that, you know, we can't we can't make those kinds of claims. And yet, nevertheless, uh, she lays out what I think is a very compelling argument and a very convincing framework for thinking about how the ways that certain types of violence are encouraged or represented in video games really does, or at least very well could, uh, have impacts for how we interface with violence in, in quote-unquote real life. So I, I thought that was a very impressive kind of needle to thread. Yeah, and and I think that I'm really glad, so, so I suggested that we read this, because we were looking for a, a chapter or a essay to read for this, um, this episode, because we just don't have time right now to, to do a full, long episode. Um, and so let us know, give us some feedback, by the way, if you like the idea of some intermittent small episodes or something like that, that certainly seems like something we could maybe fit in as Patreon bonuses or something like that. So give us some feedback on the discord or on Twitter or on Patreon about whether you like this idea or not. Um, but, uh, so I was, I was kind of casting around for things that have come in, uh, you know, into my field of view over the, the last little while. And I was aware of Amanda Phillips's work in a, in a general sense. Um, we've been in the same room several times at different conferences and things like that, but we don't, but we don't know one another. Um, and I, um, uh, up against my panel at SCMS, um, not up against, but scheduled at the same time. Um, was a panel. If where you're I'm not an academic, this is how conferences work. Is the is the panels have to fight each other? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, in your scored at the end, yeah. and uh, you're fired if if you don't have the higher <laughs> score. No, but yeah. So we just happen to be uh, scheduled at the same time. SCMS is a big media studies conference, um, and so they just have to you know, there's some restrictions on scheduling. Um, so it just kind of happened. But I saw that Phillips was doing this kind of work uh, also. And then after the, the presentation, people spoke really highly of it. So I went and kind of found her work here. And I wish that I'd had the opportunity to talk to her at, at SCMS because I found this um, so interesting. But that's, <laughs> but that's all to say, just to, to, that was to give a lot of context for what I find interesting about this uh, essay in relation to a lot of the other more contemporary work that we've been reading, because we've been bouncing back and forth in the show between kind of classic works of game studies and classic as in quotation marks, um, or, you know, the, the most often cited work, um, and then more recent work, right? We, we've been kind of splitting that divide. Mm-hmm. And what I find interesting is that a lot of the most recent work um, obviously is trying to like get away from this like video game violence debate and they're all responding to it in different ways but it seems like there's a general agreement although it's not necessarily through the same theoretical lens or through the same historical genealogy you know of citations mm-hmm. they all seem to agree that there is some relationship between violence and video games um, or a way of seeing the world that produces violence and a way of seeing the world that is afforded by video games. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in the same way that I think that designed identity, right, from Shira Chess is a way of talking about how we are crafted as players to think of the world in a certain way and, and how game developers craft their own products to think of us. Um, I think this is about how are video games in conversation with other visual media in Mm -hmm. order to think about objects in the world or people as objects in the world. And then the headshot becomes kind of this mechanism for dealing with those objects. Um, And it's incredibly violent. Um, And so, as Michael said, we're going to talk about briefly here. Um, we'll talk about JFK, which comes up significantly, and uh, Nguyen Van Lim, 
um, who is the kind of famous Vietnam photo of the execution, um, mm -hmm. uh, the street execution. I, I'm certain that people have seen it. Um, but then also the the killing of Michael Brown, uh, which mm -hmm. gets analyzed in this as well. And and Phillips kind of moves through the headshot um, in different ways and how it's understood in that scenario. Um, so so that, that's all to say. Everyone in contemporary game studies seems to see a, a relationship between violence and video games, but it's not the one that you think it is, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Right. Um, it's not the kind of, um, I mean, it's not the, the Jack Thompson argument. It's not that kind of alarmist. Uh, I mean, not to say that there isn't some sort of like ethical import to these kinds of arguments, right? But uh, the, the complexity of the situation is understood to be that much greater in yeah. terms of... Because as, as you just said, right, like this isn't just video games. This moves through um, photography. This moves through like real world violence, right? But then like photographic representations of it, um, cinematic representations, and then finally uh, video games. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. I think she says something. I, I thought I wrote the quote down. I was looking at it, but I, I don't think I did. But she says something to the effect of it is not the direct causative relationship. That, that it's often culturally cast as. And I like that, that there is a, mm -hmm. that there is a relationship. It is not causative. Um, you know, it's not direct in any way. Right. But, um, but yeah, so, so I, I guess we can kind of start here um, because she has a broad theoretical framework that is not really um, part of the game studies lexicon mm -hmm. um, necessarily. Weirdly enough, it's, it's part of my lexicon, my kind of professional or, or philosophical or disciplinary lexicon, because I come out of my degrees in moving image studies. And I would say that if I, um, you know, if I told you what are the things that I do as a scholar, right, <laughs> or the things that I was trained in, um, like I think that you would say, Michael, something to the effect of that you're a literature scholar and in mm -hmm. in an early modern scholar. Mm -hmm. Right. The, those are your things. And then maybe video games is like number four on your list or something like that. Yeah. Um, so for me, it would probably be uh, like media philosophy is like number one. That's the thing I certainly received the most training in um, and the methodologies for that strategies um, for reading uh, ways of thinking through what a text is, stuff like that. Uh, let me tell you, that's not the kind of uh, training that gets you a job. <laughs> uh, but I found it very intellectually um, uh, engaging. But so then that, and then probably video games in general, um, and, and film, probably I've received the same amount of formal training in both of those. Um, and then I would say that the third one is contemporary race studies, critical race theory, um, things like that. My advisor is a race studies scholar. I took just as much coursework in that field as I did, um, or in that kind of broad set of disciplines, um, as I did in any other, as in media studies, I guess I should say. Um, and so in that world, um, this idea of necropolitics that she's bringing up from uh, Chile Bimbe um, is is well represented. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, his most recent book, or not his most recent book, but one of his is Critique of Black Reason, and mm -hmm. then uh, his previous really big book is i think notes on the post colony um and then this necropolitics essay that kind of showed up in the middle uh, and was published and kind of did a lot of work across um different disciplines but particularly in in race studies um mm -hmm. michael what did you had you encountered necropolitics before yes i have um i cannot tell you the first point at which i encountered necropolitics specifically but um uh 
in addition, I guess, to kind of my work as an early modernist, um, one of the things I am constantly looking for is to kind of bridge historical gaps between uh, current theoretical fields or insights and kind of my own period, um, right? That's one of the one of the ways that I make my hay. Uh, so I have done um, a bit of like in my dissertation, I actually had a chapter that was very much about death um, and sort of the way that uh, death can be imagined and utilized as a kind of social mechanism. Um, so I definitely at least brushed on necropolitics at that point. Um, and then on my blog, uh, like two years ago or something like that, back when I was still sort of running my my own personal Patreon before I had a um, full-time job, I wrote uh, kind of this, I, I, I set a goal for myself where I was going to watch two random like public domain horror movies from like the 30s or 40s and then write an essay about them. And it just so happened that the uh, two movies that I watched had... Uh, a really strong necro-political bent. Um, one of them was like a sort of weird teen, like 1940s teen slasher movie remake of the story The Most Dangerous Game. Hmm. Um, like basically, you know, the story of The Most Dangerous Game is this guy is stuck on an island with this weird like Russian general um, who is like, oh yes, no, come, like don't worry, you'll be fine. Like hang out with me on this island uh, and it'll be great. Except it turns out he's like a, a big game hunter, and he he has tired of hunting actual big games. So now he hunts the most dangerous game, which is human beings. Uh, and there's this uh, really, really kind of silly, stupid movie uh, called what is it called? I don't even remember now. It's called like Blood Feast or something. Uh, that's that exact same plot, except all of the people, like the the people who wash up on the shore, are like these. 1940s teen kids um and of course like you can tell already like from this european who takes over an island and he's like hunting people on it there's a very strong like colonial racial like necropolitical bent there um so weirdly enough i guess my interest in horror is what brings me to, to necropolitics um because so much of what we think of as, as horror as a genre is kind of shot through with these anxieties about life or death, but also anxieties about um, race, whether that's uh, overt or implied. Yeah, absolutely. And necropolitics, um, thankfully, you know, I, I'm, oh, well, that's a weird way to, <laughs> to bridge these two things, but uh, thankfully, we already have kind of an understanding of biopolitics, right? Um, right. Based on the last episode that we did. Um, and necropolitics is a theoretical intervention that's coming from critical race studies, uh, black studies, uh, Africana studies, kind of kind of where you're, wherever you want to draw your disciplinary boundary. Um, but it's specifically a augmentation or auto critique uh, of uh, biopolitics, right? So biopolitics comes out of Foucault, comes out of uh, History of Sexuality, Volume 1. It's the last chapter there. It's basically the idea that the, on the onset of modernity is the onset of a regime of the management of life uh, in general. Mm -hmm. so, so it's not just about telling you what you can and cannot do, but it's about manipulating the conditions, uh, conditions of life in a general sense. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about that kind of extensively last episode. If you're interested in doing that, I think that was Chapter 5 of Games of Empire. I think it was something like that it's somewhere um, around that midpoint 
Yeah. So so if, if you're curious to hear us talk more extensively about that, uh, you can check it out there. And certainly biopolitics are going to show up many more times over the, the next episodes that we do, uh, if only because it, it becomes such an important heuristic for talking about critical theory or talking through critical theory and life and your relationship to systems of control um, from the 1980s onward, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, but necropolitics is uh, Chile Mbembe's um, kind of claim that biopolitics is insufficient for talking about the way that colonization and post-colonial relations work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so rather than um, biopolitics, which manage, manages life, uh, necropolitics is specifically about the management of the modes of death. And I think that Phillips uh, does a really great job of kind of defining or, uh, uh, or summarizing it, right? So on 137, she writes, Necropolitics marks specific populations for execution, but can also leave them in a constant state of near death or living death where chronic abuse and the lack of access limits the life chances of entire communities, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, um, this is the creation of vulnerability in populations. It's the uh, placement in the internment camp. It's the placement in the, um, uh, yeah, in, in a place where the state demarcates your ability to live in one way or the other. Right. It's like it's the the inequities uh, that are present in systems of urban planning and things like that. Yeah. So imagine, you know, if you think of, say, apartheid uh, South Africa and the images of the um, of the barbed wire fences between different areas of the city and things like that, that and and the idea that if you were a uh, a dark-skinned African, and you are crossing those boundaries, you are being placed in a relationship of potential death by the state. Um, mm-hmm. the, these are, I mean, Bimbe is very interested in talking through actual situations where people are being killed, because he makes the claim that this is a important and critical part of post-colonial violence in general. Mm-hmm. So, um, states, colonial states move from a time period of colonial extraction you go somewhere you set up a settler colony you begin taking away vital resources you begin enslaving people you do all the things that are awful that we associate with the colonial period after that is over you maintain a system of life and death a system of population management that's incredibly violent but that's the only end of that system um, mm-hmm. it's it's its own self-maintenance. Um, the same types of extraction might be happening on a corporate or economic level, but they're not the same modes as tr- the traditional colony is. Right. Um, so it's a complicated big argument. I would encourage people to go back in or to go and read through Mbembe's Necropolitics essay. You can Google that. You can find it online. It, it's well-cited and uh, well-distributed for a number of years now. It probably came out in 2000 and seven or six something like that yeah um but yeah so amanda phillips ties this up with games how, how does she do that michael well so uh it's it's really quite elegant right um basically phillips says that games uh in the same way that necropolitics in some way is is a kind of uh system systematization of uh death 
in the sense that like you at some point someone or like groups of people are kind of making calls about which people which populations are not going to be given the opportunities to flourish in the way that other populations are going to be right like who are the people that are essentially going to be marked for death um in in ways big and small uh games become a uh, technology that sort of trains you in that mindset or can train you in that mindset because uh, it, it, it approaches death in the same way as this kind of inevitability that needs to be managed, that needs to be sort of like contemplated and strategically distributed uh, either among like other like players in the game, if it's like some sort of uh, PVP experience or whatever, or, um, you know, it, it, uh, takes away sort of the finality is not exactly the right word, right? Uh, but video games engage with death uh, or like death mechanics um, in ways that encourage you to basically just to to think um, about strategic applications of death. I guess is is one way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Um, so you know, and and this isn't like. A bad thing, right? This isn't Phillips, or necessarily a bad thing, I should say. This isn't Phillips stepping in being like, games need to treat death with seriousness. Um, it's very complicated, right? And she says as much, it's complicated. And one of the things that she points to as kind of her first um, example of how complicated death in video games is, um, is uh, the ragdolls. Um, that are very common now. Uh, and she sort of explains what ragdolls are for people who aren't familiar. Um Probably people listening to this know what a ragdoll is in a video game, uh, and if you do, then you certainly know how absolutely wacky ragdoll physics can be, um, and how they kind of uh, potentially right deflate that moment of death in the video game. Um, a body. I was actually I was talking about this recently because um, I'm finally getting into Dark Souls, uh, and Dark Souls is this very serious game, um, very melancholy. And there's a lot of death in Dark Souls, but also when things die in Dark Souls, they become ragdolls that are really easy to get caught on your character model. And so mm -hmm. I end up like kicking around like three or four enemies that are dead because I can't get them stuck. Like they're stuck on my feet. <laughs> so there's this weird counterpoise between um, the the huge epic uh, sort of somber melancholy uh, you know, the contemplative ruins of Dark Souls, and then just, like, the hilarious absurdity of me and my three faithful zombie corpses um, that are now, I guess, you know, my companions for life. <laughs> because they're wrapped around your feet. <laughs> right. Um, and so, right, and then rather than, like, uh, pointing that out as, as a bug, right, Phillips is saying, this is a feature, right? The, uh, games introduce uh, death... Um, but they also minimize it. And ragdolls become one of the ways that uh, death can be made sort of approachable, especially in sort of more combative or like P uh, more serious PvP contexts. Uh, and she moves into talking about how, uh, uh, like teabagging um, in online play, right? Like that sort of uh, violation of the other player's avatar and sort of uh, the symbolic uh, violence of a, an, an agent right like this this thing this particular model in the game that was a thinking person on the other end who could move is rendered totally inert totally an object and then what is sort of left of them can be done with um as the remaining players see fit which includes you know like this pantomimed um sort of like sexual desecration yeah 
And her adaptive word for this, right, which I think is a really interesting word, and I believe that this is her book project um, mm-hmm. that she's currently working on. Um, so I'm very curious to see how this kind of gets fleshed out in, in a big way. Uh, but her adaptive word of, of bringing necropolitical analysis into video, game, video games is mechropolitics, M-E-C-H-R-O politics. Um which on 138 we get uh, a definition, a virtual, often whimsical politics of death and dying with complicated resonances in the real world. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's certainly, I think, bringing up the ragdoll thing is particularly interesting, right? And she has a whole subsection of this essay that's about that that you just kind of walk through. Um, because the the idea of... I guess we'll talk about in just a second. She, she talks extensively about brain death here, right? And, and mm-hmm. the kind of cultural consciousness of brain death and the brain being the seat of control for the body, basically. Um, right, which she argues doesn't really come to fore it until like sort of, you know, mid 20th century um, as, as neurological and cognitive scientists advance and uh, brain death becomes a concept that people understand, right? Like that, that brain brains are somehow, um, at least part of the seat of what we recognize as personhood. Yeah, okay, yeah, let's just talk about that, actually. I was going to spin up and do a different thing, but I think oh, this okay. is more interesting <laughs> um, oh, okay. um, than, than what I was going to talk about. So, yeah, I, so her, her two big examples were the ones I was talking about earlier, right, of JFK, and the way that she writes about JFK is, um, I think, some of the best academic writing I've ever heard, or, well, I didn't hear it, but that's an interesting <laughs> synesthetic moment, but uh, uh, that I've ever read um, because she, you know, she she uses these like very uh, descriptive terms. She says something about uh, the skin flap, yeah, um, in one of the frames of the Zepruder um, mm-hmm. tape, uh, and that's like a woo, like of course. Yeah. Um, but maybe that goes to uh, what I was spinning up to say a minute ago, right? Which is that there's something interesting that happens between. The ragdoll of the virtual body, mm-hmm. and then the horror of the material of the physical body. Right. Of a real dead body is, you know, I mean, people have made entire academic subfields about the way we feel about dead bodies, right? Right. Um, Kristeva's abjection stuff, you know, kind of is probably the bis- biggest example of that, but Mary Douglas with purity and danger and things like that, um, that... That, that is truly horrifying. And somehow, right, through the way that video games work and the way that we think about games and the way that we think about uh, dead bodies in a different way, right, when they appear to us in this different platform or register, um, they suddenly become, like, hyper fun and good. Um, and so her writing about these these big moments of, or, or you know, um, sensational moments of headshots in popular culture has that same kind of feeling to it, right? When when mm-hmm. when she's writing about the skin flap on, on JFK's head, right? I just think, gosh, like if if only if video games could only represent death in this way, right? Right. Um, and literally as I'm saying that, I guess there is the Sniper Elite series that does this exact thing and people find it hilarious and they love it. They love shooting Hitler in the testicles or whatever. <laughs> um, and so, or in the testicle, that's, that's the big thing around that game. Okay, but, uh, yeah. so I guess even when it is at its most sensational and realistic and horrible, people still love it. They still get joy out of it. And it's actually maybe more joyous. So yeah, I've, I've talked myself out of my own position. <laughs> right. Well, I was going to say like one, 
like if one one insertion that I would make there, right, is that uh, something that I know as an early modernist is that for a good portion of of uh, you know sort of at least European history. Uh, one of the the primary sites of kind of like public spectacle was going to watch someone get executed. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right? So I think that's definitely part of part of this uh, necropolitical like fun uh, kind of thing. Uh, that video games, obviously, if I were walking around right now and I had three corpses wrapped around my legs, I would not find that fun. But in Dark Souls, it's really funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, in uh, in the I don't know. 1600s that might also have been kind of funny <laughs> you know what i mean like you know based uh, on yeah what i know of that kind of stuff right um it could yeah. have been played for humor in a different way that it seems culturally impossible for us now outside of like faces yeah. of death or something like that a subcultural uh thing right um oh and the other thing that is actually super important about like for instance the jfk thing um just as sort of aside from the ragdolls is uh this other really interesting thing uh that philip's brings up which is that uh headshots are fetishized in games discourse and sort of popular culture at the moment in a way that they were not prior to kind of the Mm mid-century uh and even sort of in terms of practice um when when you are i guess joining the army or something like that uh you are not necessarily being trained for headshots, even though we tend to think of headshots as, especially in like gaming communities, as uh, signs of um, virtuosity or skill or uh, technique, um, in the real world, like headshots are really, really complicated, and you only take them usually if you have an unparalleled opportunity or if you're like a trained sniper. Um, but the way that they become a kind of like lingua franca uh, for talking about like. Uh, gun sportsmanship or even gun violence um, is indicative of how the trauma of seeing, you know, like JFK get shot in the head um, was for Americans, right? Like in that, that, that sense that the, the brain and the face are kind of the, the center of personhood um, like the, the total obliteration of the person, right? Like not just shooting them in the leg or like shooting them and they bleed out, but like shooting them in the head and killing them, right? Just evaporating like the person in, in kind of almost a transcendent sense. Yeah. Um, and I really like the way that she kind of characterizes that in, in that disciplinary mode that you're talking about. So when you, when you are trained in the military, it's not for that reason. Uh, or it's not to do that because they are difficult. They um, are not efficient modes of doing it. And she's reading these kind of military training manuals to to get to that point, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but she has a great quote on 140, across 140 and 141. Uh, she says that headshots are paradoxically a tool of the untrained and of the elite, meaning that they are something that someone with no actual practical gun training uh would want to do because they're cool, quote unquote, right? Um, mm-hmm. And it's something that target shooters are interested in, um, or people who mm-hmm. are invested in highly precise shooting, um, and that's it. Like, like the actual practicalities of gun use against other human beings are rarely thinking of the headshot as a thing, um, right? Which is uh, fa- it's just a, a, a wonderful uh, 
analytic angle on this issue, right? That like they're what, what mm-hmm. are headshots all about? Right. And um, one thing that I just put in my notes that I just want to throw out for, for the listeners. Uh, so she brings up um, uh, JFK, the JFK video, uh, the limb photograph, his execution photograph. Um, and just sort of the other thing I think to think about uh, in terms of necropolitics and uh, obliteration of brains and personhood is this is also more or less the moment when um, the zombie movie comes comes to be, yeah. right? Romero's uh, uh, Night of the Living Dead, you know, shoot them in the head. Like that, like that sets the formula for um, a certain, I would say, necropol- necropolitical genre that uh, we're still kind of dealing with now and i i I just think that's very interesting again horror happy spring break (laughs) well i i mean i think that there is something i think there's a really excellent piece to be written or maybe a good uh, chapter for a master's thesis that would be taking uh phillips's argument here and thinking through the history of the headshot and macropolitics and then putting it really tightly in conversation with zombie media in general um Mm -hmm. but especially Night of the Living Dead, as you're pointing out, right? Because, number one, shoot them in the head, right? The kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But also how that movie is one about race at the very end, right? Yes. Yes, extremely. A a black man is treated like a zombie or is mistaken, quote-unquote, mistaken for a zombie. um, And then shot in the head. By a wandering militia of white men. (laughs) Uh, By the local sheriff who's, you know, gathered his wandering militia. And then, of course, the very famous um, credits montage of that film in which uh, the main character is I mean, it's a lynching, you know, the, the it's mm-hmm. shot as if it were lynching photographs. He's carried on meat hooks out of the um, out of the house and things like that. It's this kind of unclean, um, undead body. Um, and so people have read the, the racial politics of that film and they were on purpose. Right. I mean, Romero is making mm-hmm. a. Uh, a racial argument um uh, well on purpose but also like accidental like do you know about uh, this? i mean i know a bit about it. i've heard him talk about it before but say more um so uh just also as a i've, I've read there's like a bfi book on the production of night of the living dead that mm-hmm. i've read where i first learned this um but uh if you want to learn more about this a new documentary was just uploaded to shutter um which is the like sort of streaming service that is specifically all about uh horror films and it's called horror noir um and it's really great because it's just basically about the history of of, uh black folks and people of color in horror cinema um so of course they talk about night of the living dead but they go go back even further it's it's so cool i highly recommend um you watch it they have uh um you know interviews with like tony todd and jordan peele uh so on and so forth but um the, the interesting thing about Night of the Living Dead is that I'm trying to remember that character's name. Yeah, I don't know. Any, um, I, I don't know anyone's name in that movie, short of Barbara, right, because so they say it 400 times. Right, right. Everyone's saying Barbara. Um, yeah, so sort of the protagonist of Night of the Living Dead, as we've already mentioned, is is this black man. Um, the character's name is Ben. The actor's name was Dwayne Jones. And... Uh, if you've never seen Night of the Living Dead, basically, you know, zombies are coming, people are freaking out, and a bunch of strangers end up kind of uh, barricading themselves together in this farmhouse as the zombies kind of uh, congregate outside. And, of course, tensions rise and everything goes to hell. Um, but Ben is uh, the character who kind of steps forward and takes charge and sort of is doing the best at keeping everyone together. And then, of course, at the end, the sheriff sees him and the militia just sort of assumes he's a zombie and they shoot him. And then we have this in credits montage. Um, 
uh, Dwayne Jones was not like that. That character was not intended to be a black man. Oh, I um, did. Yeah. Romero. Yeah. I would say it's like Romero went on record, um, sort of basically being like, yeah, no, he was the best person who showed up to the casting call that day and he was really good. And then it just kind of like made that movie what it was. Yeah. I, th- right? I think like, that movie sort is, of, uh, so much less interesting. Um, and, and I mean, above and beyond that man is the best actor in that film (laughs) yes he is Um, he absolutely is so i mean i think he's largely responsible for the kind of large cultural um afterlife of that film which i guess i guess i'm mad about i don't care for zombie media necessarily (laughs) i don't either i really don't um but i think like that that as an original like that movie sort of originally like oh that that feels pretty incisive i'm sorry that its legacy is not probably better than it should have been (laughs) Uh, so anyway, yes, uh, this is, <laughs> that's our dis- digression into zombies, um, but uh, I think it's still relevant because one of the things that uh, that Phillips brings up, right, is that uh, uh, the headshots as, as kind of this formulation of necropolitics are all about um, fusing together uh, both sort of the horror of death but also sort of like the fun of killing and also sort of uh, the, the ability to, to be able to interface with those two emotions, right? The domination of being like, you're the person who dies, right? Like I am making a decision about who is dying and how they're dying right now. Um, so yes, like that is uh, something that I think is, is very relevant to, to games, uh, especially because we've got hell of a lot of zombie games. Um, and, Oh, the other thing to sort of keep in mind then is that and this is also relevant. Um, is she sort of traces in parallel then after after uh, the headshot enters kind of the popular imagination, the way that it gets deployed in film and how it increasingly comes to signify a kind of um, technological wizardry, right? The ability to to accurately or at least um, entertainingly present a a headshot effect with a squib or a digital effect or what have you in film um, kind of changes the orientation toward headshots and emphasizes that sense of headshots, not just as a difficult thing to do like in real life, but a difficult thing to simulate. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, talking through JFK reloaded part of that too. (laughs) Yes. Um, Right. So yeah, we have this video game, very famous very very famous i don't know if i would call it that, but i don't famous, know people talk yeah. academically famous lots of people talked about it where basically um you just you can you can simulate the assassination of jfk and sort of you know control for various variables and see how things go differently um yes um it's have you ever played with that game I have not. I've read reviews and watched videos. It's, um, uh, there's nothing... Uh, there's not a game that is close to that game still. I re- also, for years, read about it and read academic articles that mentioned it and all kinds of stuff. And last year, maybe the year before that, I ran an event where we played that and some other like historical simulation-y kind of games that were simulating difficult issues in general. Mm-hmm. That game works. Uh, I mean, just as an argument about... It's partially an argument about conspiracy, right? What what mm-hmm. had to go right in order for the JFK assassination to be one gunman, right? Um, right. And it's a very compelling document for that reason. Um, but also, I mean, so so I would say anyone who's curious about that game, you can still find it. You should play the game. It's free. 
um, it is worth your two, literally two minutes. I mean, it's just one scene. Um, it it really is a compelling document, and, and part of the reason that I didn't have the language to talk about before uh, reading this um, essay is that what Philip says is that JFK Reloaded is as much a engagement with the documents around the JFK assassination as it is an actual simulator of the thing, meaning that all the content that it's bringing in in order to give context for it, so you can control those variables and read out all of the like bullet velocities and bullet angles and uh, like vectors of movement of the, the vehicle and the lead vehicle and all that stuff. Um, all of those things we know because of this extensive, hyper-attentive analysis that goes into it, right? And so she is mm-hmm. just as interested in, or not just as interested, but but the mode of analysis for macro politics for her is both the event of the headshot and the conditions of reception for the headshot. So when she starts talking about the uh, killing of Michael Brown by Darren Wilson... Um, and, uh, what she's talking about in that scenario is that there is both a killing that happens, and then there is a massive explosion of analysis around that because it's a racialized killing, it's the murdering of a person of color by a police officer, all of these different things, all of these different, uh, appropriately analyzed contexts for these things. Um, and so there's a massive flurry uh, on all sides of the political spectrum in order to find justification or reason, right? So everyone is trying mm-hmm. to figure out why. And what that comes down to, not not entirely down to, but one of the big modes of engagement with that event uh, is that that Wilson shoots Michael Brown in the head three times, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this question of why the headshot and in what in what arrangement of the material world and ideology and gun and finger in human and victim, in what arrangement does it create a condition under which a headshot could occur? Right. And not just that, because to reemphasize, right, we have already established that it is difficult enough to do a headshot once. Yes. Yes. Right. So doing it three times is something. Yes. Which is which is why the uh, it becomes talk. Uh, she talks through this too in the piece, uh, kind of more extensively than we will hear. But the question of execution style, right, comes up mm-hmm. of killing someone, of shooting them in the head to murder them, as opposed to um, defending oneself or something like that. You know, kind of the line of argument uh, that ultimately ends up defending um, uh, Wilson. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all to say that she is saying that it is the system of interpretation and thinking through the headshot, this macropolitics that matters mm-hmm. just as much as any kind of relationship between a player and a fictional weapon in a video game. That these are all part of a broad spectrum of thinking about headshots in the world that we just have to, to look at head on and really think about. Mm-hmm. Um, Right. And so, like, just another thing that I think is really interesting that she talks about is um, the way that the way that game. So, you know, games model guns in certain ways and they don't all model them the same way. Some of them might have like, you know, they might place more emphasis on like realistic recoil or something like that. Um, But the fact of the matter is, as she points out, in real life, when you are firing a gun, um, 
shit can go really wrong. Like, guns can hurt you, right? The recoil can, like, break your thumb or bruise your shoulder. Um, the weather impacts, like, how much your bullet drifts once it's fired. Uh, and games, by sort of... Um, I guess lubricating some of the mechanics of, of the, the actual firing of a gun, the work it would take to, to line up your shot and take it and so on. Um, they create a, a method sort of broadly speaking for, this is how people like, this is going to be the number one sort of uh, experience people have with regard to, to shooting guns with headshots, right? Unless they are like people who go out and get their own gun training. Um, they are going to sort of come to understand guns as mediated by video games. Mm -hmm. um, and she argues that this for in, this has this sort of effect where if we think of uh, shooting guns and headshots in particular as, as kind of virtuosic, this is a word that she uses a lot as um, sort of if you're going through a game and you're always, you always want to get for the headshot because that's going to do the most damage. It's going to make, the coolest noises, the, the, the announcer voice is going to be like headshot or something. Um, moving through those gaming environments, um, always ready, always just on, on the verge of going for that headshot. Uh, that has an effect on the way that people might look at something, um, like Darren Wilson killing Michael Brown, uh, and just like that, the, the twitch reflex, right? The like, well, that's just, that's how you have to be when you have a gun, right? You have to be on edge. You have to be ready to take that headshot. Yeah, um, that, that the yeah. movement, uh, that there is a cultural understanding that moves from a headshot as a execution to a headshot as a normal mode of practice for someone with a gun. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, while you were talking, I was looking for the quotation because I think it's really written. Um, it, it's just a very compelling read. So it's a little, little bit long, but um, I think it's important to read. So uh, she writes, uh, it is also a future in which Twitch responses are valorized for a growing segment of the population. Implicit biases govern the realm of Twitch responses, and they have already been found to affect rapid decision making along the lines of race and lethal force. As more people begin to relate to headshots in the affective and temporal terms set by video games, rather than the actual combat or law enforcement scenarios they raise, important questions about the future of lethal force. Will these habits be easy to train out of law enforcement cadets? Will commentators understand the shifting history of shoot-to-kill scenarios? Will juries increasingly identify with the shooter who scored the epic win? Right, so mm -hmm. this is what you're saying, you're, what you're summarizing, but I think the way that she puts that is very, very compelling, that by it shifting is. the cultural context for the headshot, Michael Brown being shot three times in the head does not turn, it, it's not, how could this possibly have happened, right? But Because that's so Im almost impossible to happen naturally, it mm -hmm. turns into, well, of course, um, and a jury who sees that will think, oh, of course, because that's the way these things work. Right. When you have a gun, you aim for the yeah. head. And that, that I think that's such a compelling argument. I think that's such a compelling way of, of linking up this kind of necro-political idea into visual culture and games more broadly and creating necro-politics mm -hmm. as a term. Um, I, ju I just think this is an incredibly, uh, I, I know I've said compelling a thousand times, but compelling claim about the way that visual culture works. 
Mm-hmm. Um, she has a coda where she talks about uh, the the training. Oh, this was this was horrible. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to read this. Uh, in December 2014, an officer in the National Guard discovered her brother's mugshot, along with the mugshots of several other black men on an array of photographs used for sniper practice by the North Miami Police Department. In the context of increased awareness of police, police re- brutality against unarmed people of color, these targets prompted outrage and condemnation of racist police departments that would train their officers to shoot at the faces of black men. However, such critique effectively removes the act from its context is a training mechanism for sniper-specific skills, namely the ability to recognize an individual target from among a group of similar faces. Torres and Shepard cite uh, Chief J. Scott Dennis explaining that the target array found at the shooting range was one of a number of other arrays produced for sniper training that feature individuals of various races and genders, which he produced for video documentation. While we still must question the use of black men's faces on the particular day of training, many federal and state agencies use photorealistic targets of various races for their training and firearms qualifications. What the sniper mugshot saliently reveal then is less about the racial politics of policing than about how the slippages between the structures of games and simulations and the structures of real life cannot be separated from contemporary racial concerns. Like, that is sort of her coda, and I think that is a a very uh, neat way, I mean, like, that sounds like so awful in this context, neat, but, um, you know, we, we, it's easy to look at that situation and be like, oh yeah, sure. Like police racism, like there's, there's a very easy way to kind of like spin this, um, that is not itself wrong, but then Phillips goes one step further and is like, yeah, but this isn't just like the police are, are, are racist, right? This tells us something about like the ways that, uh, simulations and our technology and sort of, um, uh, are, are, methods of training uh police officers or people to use guns um in fact you know are are sort of fundamentally uh at least exploitable for these racialist concerns yeah yeah absolutely um uh yeah just i'm actually looking at the next paragraph too i just (laughs) i'm not gonna read the entire last page of this this article but uh this is the paragraph uh right after where you stopped Metropolitics entangles life death and play within the field of simulation that we can identify as operating within strict technological or gamic mechanics in the final example adding representation of human faces introduces an additional layer of difficulty and one might add realism to the mechanics of a firearms drill meant to prioritize pinpoint accuracy that one day that might one day save lives. The result is an exercise bearing an uncanny resemblance to twitch reflex light gun games that punish gamers for shooting innocent bystanders who jump in the way. Games have been entwined with tactical and strategic training since their inception, so the structural similarities between drill and game is neither surprising nor alarming. It is rather the way this drill introduced real-life photographs of black men in the cultural milieu of real death for black men in encounters with police that begins to blur the lines. The mechanics of simulated death become hopelessly entangled in the necropolitics of contemporary domestic policing. This collapses all the levels that we have been building to this point. The headshot is a virtuosic but impractical feat of skill. It's rise to a ubiquity in culture, despite selective application in real life, and the gamic inducement to enact violence on representations of bodies. So all of this big visual system that we've been lining up for for Phillips, this final example pushes all that into one register. 
um, mm-hmm. that there is uh, racial violence. There's the disciplining of the headshot as a way of doing actual policing. And then there is this kind of conceptualization of necropolitics that shoots through all of that. Well, or that extends through all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a really good article. And I am excited to see what uh, comes out of this in terms of a book project. Yes, same. I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting this uh the the book i think it'll be very good um i'm sure that we will do it on mages and murder dads but knowing the speed of academic publication i bet it's a little ways a little ways away (laughs) Um, but that's okay we're gonna be doing the show until we are old yep we're gonna be ancient people won't even be listening to podcasts anymore we'll We'll we'll, be recording we'll be in the cloud we'll upload ourselves to the cloud and then uh people can have (laughs) um discussions with us and we'll license out that discussion yeah, we'll have Ray Kurzweil on. <laughs> uh, Ray Kurzweil, uh, in the way that Daniel Joseph uh, shakes his fists and, and yells, uh, uh, Kant! Um, I, I do the same thing for uh, Ray Kurzweil. Um, but uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. This is a little bit different, a little bit shorter episode. Uh, let us know how you feel about it. If you like the idea of these shorter chapter-based or essay-based things, um, like I said, we I think probably we'd be open to doing this as a Patreon exclusive at some sort of tier of Patreon. So mm-hmm. um, just let us know if that would be a thing that you'd be interested in. Um, of course, the show is supported by Patreon. You can check that out in the description below. So please go down and do that uh, below this episode. And um, you can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash cconsulman. Um, you can follow all of Range Touch, of which uh, Game Study Study Buddies is but one show, um, at twitter.com slash touch. Both of those are down in the description below, as well as a link to our Discord. Michael, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter at Warren is dead. Come, come yell at me. Um, also, you can send uh, emails to us uh, through the email address Game Studies Study Buddies. That's all one word at gmail.com. All right. Well, thanks, uh, everyone, for listening today. Um, we will be back in the next couple weeks with an episode on Galloway once everything uh, calms down. And then I don't know what we're doing after that. We haven't decided, um, but we but I'm sure it. we'll get there. Uh, Michael, you have anything to plug? Uh, not at the moment. Okay. Well, eagerly awaiting the moment Michael has something to plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we'll see you next month. See it, Gain Studies Study Buddies, where the social is predicated on its exclusions. The social is predicated on its exclusions. <laughs>